It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, we didn't see this coming, but 2021 turned out to be the year when the crazy things we normally talk about at the end of the podcast turned into the things we talk about during the serious part of the show, too. With crypto executives being called before Congress, tokens that started out as jokes skyrocketing to tens of billions of dollars in value, NFTs of bored apes selling for millions of dollars, Coinbase going public, you name it. It was hard to avoid the crypto headlines this year and wonder what it all means going forward. We're going to talk to the woman leading Bloomberg's coverage of it all about what a wild year it was and what to look out for in 2022. And speaking of crazy and wild things, our operators are standing by to take your crazy things. So if anybody saw something that they wanted to flag or wanted to let us know about, you can call us on the Crazy Things hotline. That's 646-324-3490. Leave us a voicemail. Maybe we'll play it on the show. And as always, you can always tweet at us as well. But first, I want to bring in Stacey Marie Ishmael. She's the managing editor for Crypto at Bloomberg. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Stacy, also my neighbor in the office, uh, although I'm getting kicked out of that row. Uh, I'm getting kicked St- out too, don't worry about it. Stacey, we're, all we're all getting kicked out. They're moving me closer to the men's room, which for a guy my age is is a good, it's an upgrade. So, <laughs> so I'll take it. But Stacy, I just want you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I mean, how does such a nice, smart, level-headed woman, what career path takes her into this crazy world of crypto uh, that you found yourself in? Give us sort of your your resume in a nutshell here. Sure. So I'm a person who has bounced between technology and media for a long, long time. And my very first job in journalism as a kind of a baby reporter was covering structured finance, credit default swaps and derivatives from 2006 to 2009, which, you know, was an interesting time. Yeah, that's an entry level coverage area there (laughs) for a baby reporter. Wow. Yeah, it was, you know, it's what you do. Um, You sort of get you get thrown into the deep end, you start writing these stories about market indices of credit default swaps that seven people read. And then for lots of different subprime and housing related reasons, six months later that everybody in the whole country and the world are reading. <laughs> so, you know, I, I come at finance from this perspective of what goes up must go down, but sometimes it goes sideways and you don't always understand what the structural transmission mechanisms might be something that looks totally uncorrelated actually turns out to be 100% correlated with something else. And that's a perspective that I found really helpful in in crypto, where you have to both take it, uh, I suppose, seriously, but not literally (laughs) when, when you're thinking about these things. 
And I also have, you know, a technology background. I've worked for technology companies. I have more kind of technical skills. I know I know enough programming and code to be dangerous, which has also come in really handy from the perspective of evaluating and understanding some of the white papers in crypto about like why you should trust this ohm token or just on understanding how disruptive some of the conversations that we're having about the underpinnings of blockchain can be for the rest of the sector. So just to start out really broadly speaking, I know you wrote uh, an article for Bloomberg recently. It's titled Wall Street Finally Learns It Can't Ignore Crypto and NFTs. So I was hoping we could start out with you just sort of talking about the year in crypto. It seems like the big theme was Wall Street acceptance. We heard that mm-hmm. over and Grudging over. or otherwise. Right, exactly. So maybe it, it, can you lay, lay that out for us and what some of those factors were and why that is important for the crypto community? Ooh, three, three good questions at once. Okay, so I'll start with what's, what happened, right? Which is if you think back to, you know, millions of years ago in January 2021, when so much of the conversation about crypto was tied up in scams, fraud, and ransomware, right? If you were if you were talking about Bitcoin, you were talking about how somebody lost all of theirs. And, you know, I think that that really had set been the tone and set the tone for all but the truest of believers for quite a long time. I think there are a lot of media companies, Bloomberg included, that had much more sophisticated coverage of crypto than just it's all scams all the time. But you know, if you were to ask a person on the street, odds are that if they had heard about it, they either thought it was totally sketchy or they also were like team buy gold, <laughs> you know, high, high guns in a basement kind of kind of stereotype. And then a few things happened all at once, right? Which is that you had the beginnings of fairly significant price appreciation because Coinbase went public and Coinbase being this major, major exchange and hopefully helped. Well, I think the people who were backing it helped hope that it would help institutionalize the idea of this is something that you can take seriously. Look, it's, it's serious enough for this to be part of the public markets. And that was in kind of March, April, those conversations were happening and you you started to see that first run up in prices. I would also say that right around that time when some of the buzz around meme stocks was kind of hitting its peak, there was a lot of overlap between people who were spending a lot of time on Reddit forums talking about Hertz, et cetera, with people who were spending a lot of time in Discord talking about different crypto tokens. And I have what I sometimes call my unified theory of crypto, which is that it's roughly the same groups of folks who are interested in sports betting, poker, video games, NFTs, Wall Street bets, Discord, Reddit, Twitch, and YouTube. And not everybody is part of every single one of those communities, but chances are that if you belong to any one of them, you are adjacent to people who belong to the others. And I think there was a lot of interesting overlap and conversation between some of the folks who were like diehard on meme stocks and, you know, trading those in Robinhood with people who were like, hey, have you heard about Ethereum? (laughs) Maybe you should should add that to your portfolio. And this is kind of what I mean about when you, you have to take crypto seriously, but not always literally, which is like, you, you wouldn't look back and say, okay, Wall Street now has to take crypto seriously because of Wall Street bets. But you could also say one of the reasons that Wall Street is taking crypto seriously is because another thing that was driving material performance in markets 
from the equities perspective, there were similar trends driving material performance in crypto, you know, a totally different asset class. And then, of course, I think one of the biggest things that happened, and they happened within not too far apart from each other, is El Salvador was like, we're all in on Bitcoin. And China was like, Bitcoin's completely illegal. <laughs> and you had these totally different approaches to the asset class that had you know, some interesting ripple effects, right? Which is one, folks were like, well, if this is serious enough for an entire country to ban it, and it's also seriously enough for an entire country to go all in on, on Bitcoin, perhaps we should pay more attention, right? So whether you were pro or con, the fact that this asset class had risen to sovereign attention, as it were, was I think another marker for folks that, okay, they can't just be like, la la la, I don't know what's going on here. They really need to engage with it in a serious way. So if your portfolio included emerging market exposure of any kind, or your portfolio included Tesla, or it included MicroStrategy, you know, you were suddenly having to be way more up to speed on Bitcoin than you were maybe comfortable with or even aware of, right? So all of all of this is happening in a very short amount of time. You know, we we kind of go from like, ah, this is all bad and ransomware to like, whoa, I need to, I need to understand this better. And then you have this incredible run-up in prices. Well, you know, at the time of recording, like crypto is obviously nowhere near the all-time highs that we hit in November. You know, we're about 30 to 40% down from the peak, depending on the day. But we are still so far above, you know, the the when you could buy a Bitcoin for like $800 <laughs> that it's almost a different universe. And I think that when you when you consider, as Mike mentioned in the intro, you have NFTs selling for millions of dollars, you have single tokens experiencing 3000% appreciation in a given window, you have Bitcoin trading above $60,000. If you are a serious person in financial markets, there is too much money on the table, whatever your personal opinion of the asset class might be, to ignore that. Yeah, absolutely. I love your unifying theory there. You know, I, I picture it as like a big Venn diagram with all these little bubbles, yeah. but all of them sort of dip into the, the crypto space uh, to some degree. I know personally, I know a lot. Of, I have some friends who were online poker players who, you know, when there was a crackdown on that, all of a sudden, the only way you could really bet on online poker was was with crypto. Uh, you know, so it's it's interesting, the different sort of, you know, uh, avenues that you can get sucked into it. Um, but Stacey, I wanted to talk sort of from the journalistic perspective, because along with the growth of crypto, there's been this whole new growth of media companies covering crypto. And you know, whenever that happens, there you know these publications have some sort of vested interest in the space, and to me, there's a risk of sort of coverage that that borders on cheerleading. You know, and I don't want to use cheerleading in a derogatory term, Vildana. I'm the father of two cheerleaders. I actually, <laughs> I could be pressed into service as like a back spot in a stunt group if needed. So I, I all all the that's, respect that's in the world. That's a good for skill actual, to have. It is for if yeah, if you ever want to do a stunt at work, let me know. You know, all the respect in the world for cheerleading. Um, but, you know, from that notion of, and I think I know the answer, I think Voldata knows the answer, but to listeners out there who are used to reading a different type of coverage of crypto, how, how do you approach Bloomberg's coverage and, and how, how might it be different than, say, and I'm not going to name any names, but a website that obviously has, has direct skin in the game of the crypto world more so than we would? 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is the perpetual question of trade magazines, right? In the sense of, and you know, for a place where if your direct owner is incentivized because they participate in the crypto ecosystem to have all prices go up, that can present interesting editorial challenges and compromises. But it's, I think, as a, as a universe of media, it's not something we're totally unfamiliar with. What I would say that I'm trying to bring to Bloomberg is. In, in terms of crypto coverage is a phrase that I use a lot, which is rigorous skepticism. And that is to say, I'm not actually interested in being cynical or nihilistic about the asset class. I'm not interested in starting from a place of, well, all of this is you know potentially fraudulent. Like I don't think that's journalistically useful. And I, I also think it's untrue, right? Like, is there an above average number of sketchiness happening at all times? Like, yeah, sure. But it's not that's not the entirety of the universe. Similarly, I'm not like a starry-eyed believer who will, you know, take for granted any claim that a aggressively well-funded crypto CEO makes about this is the pathway to wealth redistribution. Like, sure, how? <laughs> give me, give me evidence, give me examples, you know, like show me materially what this means in practice. Um, and I think that's that's where I would like all of our coverage to live, right? That we are appropriately curious and we're appropriately questioning, but we are su- sufficiently open-minded that we don't miss interesting stories. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So speaking of some of the conversations we've been having internally, I know we're we've been working on a lot of stories that are, you know, looking at the year in review for crypto and for Bitcoin and for all these other offshoots. And so I'm wondering, you know, I've been asking a lot of people, like, what will it take to continue to see the market mature? And I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you're thinking about that. I think any market in which you have individual tokens or groups of tokens that can go up or down by 230,000% in one day is not mature yet. And I think that when you are in a situation in which individual CEOs tweeting about their puppies can cause entirely new classes of things to spring into existence, I would also say it's not you know, fully baked from from that kind of perspective. And so I I look at a couple of different things. If you think about, you know, some traditional markers, it's like, what's the depth of the liquidity, right? What's What's the sort of proportion of pure momentum driven speculation to fundamental analysis and investment? Like how many people are hodling, as it were, not merely because they think that if they outlast everybody else, there will be gains for them, but because they're making a more fundamental bet on something else. I look at the, frankly, the quality of the executive bench of a lot of these crypto companies. Like, you know, what is what is the experience of the folks involved? What are their backgrounds? How do they spend a lot of time on Twitter raging against the machine? Or are they doing work? <laughs> 
you know, it's it's things that you tend to, from a, a more traditional perspective, you see a lot of activity happening in crypto that makes you think that there is a degree of unseriousness, which can be funny, but is also troubling. Um, I'll give an example. You know, just this year, we have seen a tremendous number of outages and downtime across, you know, even some of the biggest players in the space. And it'll be, well, you can't log in for X amount of time, or you can't withdraw, or you can't liquidate this particular position, or you've been locked out of your accounts for X number of days. And if you are a person who's used to sort of technology, and perhaps some of our listeners might remember when if you use Twitter, you would see the fail whale like every five minutes. It's like, ah, oh, Twitter is down again. And it's like that that can be funny for a while, but then you start to have people who are like, hang on a minute, this is my primary bank account. Or I have positions that are at risk of being liquidated here because the market is moving against me and I can't log into my account to adjust and adapt accordingly you start to move into one actually needing customer service, like actually needing to be able to service and meet the needs of your customers who might be facing some kind of difficulty and two, way better reliability and uptime, right? It's like you get past a point of trillions of dollars where joking around on your social platforms while people are locked out of their accounts goes from like funny, haha, we're all in this together to just unprofessional and inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. You know, Stacey, I want to sort of unpack something you said early on there in that answer. And um, it, it relates to an interesting quote I, I saw recently, and I, I wish I had written down who who tweeted it or, or said it, but it was it was basically the notion that uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, is a solution in search of a problem. And, you know, people kind of been saying that about crypto all, all along, but I do think, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, something that is a, a criticism of DeFi that's that's worth talking about, you know. You know, the, the real believers in DeFi will tell you, well, it's, you know, it it's opens the doors to the unbanked and to the populations that have been sort of neglected by traditional financial services. Is there validity to that? I mean, is that sort of just the the, the nice bow you put on top of a real gambler's market to make it look like, uh, you know, it's a virtue signal a little bit? What? How do you uh, think of that, uh, you know, the whole world of decentralized finance and uh, you know, the ability to to solve real world problems that people might be having with the traditional financial system. Sure. If I put my curious and also skeptical hat on for a second, I think back to a couple of things. I think back to when people were like, why do we need email? Hmm, fax machines yeah. are great. And then, <laughs> or, or like this internet thing will never take off. Or video chatting, never going to need that. We were in person constantly, right? Like there's always a moment when you are standing at a technological fork in the road where whatever you are doing right now seems so fine, adequate, appropriate, well-suited to whatever the problem is that anything that isn't that seems ridiculous, right? And I think there are certain, there is a risk in, in some of the discussion of DeFi that is that idea of, eh, what we have now is fine. Like what you're talking about is overly complicated and doesn't make any sense and it's, it's never going to work, right? And now we say this while recording on Zoom <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, in, in full video over something organized by email that we will publish to the internet. So I think there is some of that, but I also think that there are insufficiently compelling arguments for some of the valuations and some of the claims that we see in DeFi, right? Because I think it's like, you could argue that the 
the mere fact of being able to offer 12% APY in a low-ish interest rate environment is like useful for people who are looking for yield. Right. That's that's certainly a problem that's being solved um, through some applications of DeFi. You could argue that the idea of smart contracts is kind of genius, actually, that, you know, you have this notion of within an agreed set of parameters and variables, you can automate things right now that are otherwise very manual. Any lawyers listening to this like hate smart contracts because (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of potentially automating them out of jobs. But You know, there's like lots of interesting stuff out there, but there isn't, you know, to use a phrase from our colleague Olga Karif, there isn't a killer app for DeFi yet, other than like, here's like yield farming with super attractive interest rates, or here's a handful of particularly technical or, you know, niche uses that some people find really helpful, but for the vast majority, their eyes glaze over when you try to explain to them how it works. (laughs) I'm glad you brought up the fax machine. Uh, I, I'm so old, Vildana. When I was a baby reporter, the newspaper had a fax machine, but like uh, the police department didn't and <laughs> the, the funeral homes didn't. So, you know, I'd have to walk to the police station, take notes on all the police reports. You know, the, the funeral home would call and, and read me in about 30 seconds, this super long obit that, that I'd have to take down and, you know. So uh, to me, the fax machine was revolutionary when the, when those places started getting. I I I can see where Paul Krugman was coming from when he said, you know, the internet is is just going to be as influential as the fax machine. Because I found it to be pretty influential way back in the day. <laughs> I'm imagining baby Mike Regan reporter hovering by the fax machine, skinnier, <laughs> browner hair. You know, otherwise about the same. Stacey, I also wanted to ask you. Speaking of all things DeFi, there's also this trend of regular, you know, uh, old school, traditional financial products, things like ETFs, maybe also moving into the DeFi space or or some version of it moving into the DeFi space. I'm wondering if you're surprised by sort of that whole world recreating itself in the crypto world. Not at all. Um, You know, Regan's heard me say this because as we said, we're basically desk mates where I'm like, everything old is new in crypto, (laughs) which is, you know, the idea that in whatever you have a, a, a starry-eyed industry that's like, we're going to change the world, but first we're going to rebuild everything we left behind, but we're going to make them better, <laughs> but we're going to start from recreating this infrastructure. It, it happens all the time because inventing things gen- that are genuinely new and have never existed before is, you know, super hard, actually. Um, and what I what I also think is that there are parts of crypto, there are parts of DeFi that let you do certain things more efficiently, potentially, or, you know, with less friction, even if the underlyings are very similar, right? So, you know, we've we've kind of looked at different things around what would it mean if remittances didn't take days on average, but instead took hours and you could initiate them from WhatsApp, right? You're still doing the same thing. You're moving money across borders. But the cost of moving that money and the convenience of moving that money is like transformational in in its distinctiveness. And so I don't think that the that recreating old things in a in a with a new coat of paint is necessarily a bad thing. And it's often helpful to help skeptics migrate along with you because somebody's like, oh, I understand ETFs or I understand tokenization or I understand fractional shares. And so I have now a useful mental model 
to approach something that I couldn't make head or tail of before. Yeah. Stacey, I wanted to get into the NFT market uh, a little bit. You know, it's fascinating to me because NFTs really started out as sort of this, you know, it seemed to come from the artistic community more than anything else and, and kind of the the outsider community. And there's obviously, you know, uh, sort of an appeal and, and a, uh, a naturalness, a, a sort of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's something to feel good about, I feel like. But then, you know, every day I come in now and there's some corporation or some celebrity in my inbox talking about a new corporate sponsored NFT or, or some celebrity getting involved. And it, kind of, it seems to me to kind of cancel out that sort of grassroots artist end of it. You know, is there a tension there, do you think? And, you you know, I know it's impossible to say which way it goes, but does the sort of corporate, you know, intrusion on the NFT market kind of kind of ruin, you know, the fun on the artsy side of it? This is the absolute punk rocker in you. That is, it is, totally. totally. It's like down, down with the man. Uh, I will, <laughs> Huge uh, well, compliment first, for him. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. That's how I mean it. I'll say a couple of things about that. One is when people think about NFTs right now, they often will have a visual in mind because, you know, the things selling for $300,000, $70 million are visual representations that are akin to, or in some cases are art, right? So I don't necessarily consider an ape smoking a cigarette high art, <laughs> but it is, it is highly visual. And then there are some pretty cool and interesting experiments, you know, from like folks like everybody from Beeple to Banksy that are much more in that like fine art with a digital perspective um, kind of persuasion. But but the visual is not what defines the NFT, right? What defines the idea of, the, of an NFT is this idea of uniqueness and that you can only have one not because the thing itself is not replicable, but because there is a one-to-one -one ownership claim. And so I do think that right now, art is where NFTs have like captured the popular imagination. And there is some fun outsider energy, just as much as there is, you know, massive corporations like AMC and Marvel and others being like, ha-ha. We can make more money on this. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Here's a Spider-Man NFT for you. <laughs> but I also think NFTs are like massively underimagined in their ultimate potential, right? Because it's like you could represent anything with an NFT. It's 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 a container for ownership. And I think when you know it could be drawings, it could be music. I um I was reading a story that an unreleased Whitney Houston track was just sold as an NFT, right? It's like, it, it is a container that represents authenticity. And I, I am looking forward to folks putting more interesting things in those containers over time. And I'm also looking for there to be kind of a shakeout. I mean, you know, Mike, you and me are probably old enough to remember when like AOL was a thing. Yeah. Ba -dong, and, ba -dong, ba -dong. <laughs> there you go. And in addition to all of the unused CDs with an hour of AOL access <laughs> that so many of us collected over the years, brands would like claim their AOL identity, right? And they were like, we have to set up shop on AOL. And then it was like, well, we have to have our own .com presence. And it's like, we have to have our own Facebook page. We have to have our own Twitter handle. There is always a digital brand rush to make sure that one, they have some control over their intellectual property on whatever the hot new thing is. 
And two, that if there's any money to be made or any audience engagement to be generated, that they don't miss out on it. And then there's a shakeout, right? Where the brands who understand how to like interact on that platform survive and the ones who don't, don't. (laughs) So it's a great point about sort of the potential of of what an NFT can be. I always bring up the notion of uh, the Zed racing, you know, basically Mm -hmm. digital thoroughbred horses that can race each other and can breed and, and, you know, sort of recreating the whole horse racing industry in NFT. Whenever I, I talk about it to like a, a, I won't say use the word degenerate, but a, a gambling enthusiast friend of mine, they're, you know, they may roll their eyes at the notion of NFTs, but then you mention that and then explain and you're that like, to oh, them. But horses. <laughs> yeah, right. But horse racing. Okay. Now, now this is, this changes everything. <laughs> yeah. I want to give a shout out to my in-laws who just last year got rid of their AOL dial-up internet. Wow. Wow. I know. I know. They've been paying all these years. I think it was like a monthly fee. So, (laughs) and they're the listeners of the podcast. So I'm proud of them. Amazing. Shout out to the in-laws. Hello. Yeah. Shout out. Rich and Lori. (laughs) But uh, just to wrap everything up, obviously a big through line here is that there were all these new people who entered the market for whatever reason, as you laid out, at the start of the show. And I know we are constantly thinking about, just as we are with the stock market, thinking about whether or not these new investors are going to stick around. I know for a while, the idea was that as economies everywhere start to reopen, that people will become less interested, there won't be as much stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think that this huge new wave of investors is here to stay? I think every generation looks for a place to put their money. And I also think that it's never been true that investing is a solitary act because I've certainly read a lot of coverage that is like, oh, you know, they're just saying that it's about community, but it's actually just about money. But like, yeah, but, you know, fund managers in the Mad Men era were all trying to impress their smoking buddies with <laughs> like whatever, whatever their picks were. There's always been an element of social approval to portfolio management even when your approval is the rejection of the status quo, right? You want to be the contrarian, you want to be the bear in a bull market. And so I think when people underestimate the social and community elements of crypto, they miss a very large part of the story because unlike, you know, the previous times when your social universe will like, your fellow men at the country club, because let's be clear, there were mostly no women there. Now it's the 5,000 people in the discord with you, right? And they can be all over the world and they're going to come at things from different places. And that is, you know, discord is, it's a big chat forum. It's like Slack. It's like AOL Instant Messenger, but it's a place where people are communicating and it's built into how we live our lives. And I don't think that communication is going to go away. And I don't think the expectation of, I'm going to ask perfect strangers what gotchi they're going to buy. <laughs> um, I don't think that's going away either. And so even if we see a major shakeout, I mean, like we are down again, 30 to 40% from the high, um, all of this money still needs places to go. And folks, so, yeah, sure. Some folks will reallocate and they'll be like, I can't handle this volatility. I'm going to buy some bonds. But I don't think it's going to disappear just because some people have moved on to the next thing. Like there are signs, you know, even with what I said about the relative immaturity of the asset class, there are absolutely signs of institutionalization, right? You mentioned ETFs, 
right? There are so many more ways to get exposure to something that is still offering really impressive returns and yields compared with, you know, lots of other things out there. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, Stacey, before we get to our crazy things of the year, not just the week, I think we got to do of the year this time. Just briefly, so where do you see the whole plot line going for crypto in 2022? But, you know, both the regulatory front and just the, the, the space itself. You know, what, I know it's impossible. It's such a fast moving space to try to predict what's I feel the- like if I could answer that question, I'd be, I'd be a hedge fund manager. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm not, not a journalist. <laughs> But I do think the biggest open question in crypto is what a regulator is going to do. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's going to be an all or nothing. It's all all in in the El Salvador way or all against in the China way. I think there's and I actually think that is much harder in some ways because it means if you're interested in the space, you have to become a, an expert on the regulatory regimes of like 50 different governments yeah. and, you know, an equal number of central banks. But the amount of uncertainty over whether just in state by state in the US, for example, you are allowed to like access MetaMask or some other kind of wallet is is considerable. And that is certainly weighing on consumer access because institutional investors will always find ways around um, whatever regulations are. And then I would say the second thing is we'll probably start to see some price normalization across various types of asset classes. And I don't think the price normalization necessarily means we're going to decline another 40%. I think there's going to be more of a, a reliable median for certain types of things. You know, like the, the NFT market right now is such a barbell. It's like hundreds of millions of dollars or two. <laughs> and like, and there's, there's, you know, significant concentration on the two end and a handful of examples on the hundreds of millions of dollars. End. And that's not super sustainable or attractive or interesting, right? Like it's, it's hard to become a mass market product if you either offer very little or you offer a ton, but only if you have significant capital to, to get into that space. And so I think we'll probably start to see a little bit more of a shakeout there, just so things kind of settle to a place that make more intuitive sense to folks. Tighten up your straight jackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw this year. Voldana, what's the craziest crypto or other story in markets you saw this year? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this because obviously I covered a lot of them. And it was really hard to make up my mind. But something that I read recently is sticking out. And Stacy a little bit already was alluding to this. So Stacy earlier had said at the start of the year, it was all scams all the time. And so-and-so lost their uh, crypto keys, et cetera, et cetera. And there actually is this amazing story from the New Yorker called Half a Billion in Bitcoin Lost in the Dump. So my second shout out today. That one goes out to the New Yorker. It's an amazing story of this person who claims to be the 
fifth person to have been mining Bitcoin like way, way long ago. And he unfortunately lost his hard drive that has all the information on it. So he's trying so hard to literally dig it out from a dump in England. Is that, is that the guy? He's like in Wales. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I, I remember reading about that. Yeah. And he's trying We're to in the UK, yeah. trying to pay off the, the operators of the dump to let him in with a metal detector. I mean, good he luck is, yeah. finding it though. But it's something like a few it's hundred amazing. hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin it's on this. Five, it's, I think it's $500 million, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's amazing. He has all these blueprints for how he's going to dig it up little by little and have it go through metal detectors and yeah. all these people who are going to be working on it, who's going to get a cut. And you just you you feel his pain. But at the same time, the, I love the idea of it being a, about, you know, him actually just losing a little computer piece. So I, <laughs> an actual physical thing that he lost. If If I were him, my first line of questioning would be like, did any employees of the dump retire early i i, I want to know who they that's are a that's a really that, good point that's that's who i'd that would my investigation would start there but stacy how about you i i don't suppose you saw anything crazy in crypto markets this oh, year oh no Every, everything's <laughs> super chill all the time um back <laughs> in october there were a bunch of headlines about the fact that like whoa this crypto punk which is a collection of nfts just sold for 500 million dollars what's happening mind is blown and then we were like wait a minute the person who sold and bought the CryptoPunk is the same. <laughs> and it was a, you know, it was wash trading, right? Yeah. And like the person was doing it for the lulls, whatever. But it was enabled by a kind of a smart contract, a flash loan, right? Which is the idea that you could just, in the space of seconds, like the time it takes to perform that transaction on the, on the blockchain, put something up for sale, borrow a bunch of money, to buy it back and then repay that money in the process of selling it back to yourself like this just with computer code was fascinating to me because I thought, okay, one, here's a world for which regulators are completely unprepared. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. two, it's just sort of another example of, you know, there will be some folks who always have alpha because they understand different ways to end run the system. Right. And, you know, you could argue that wash trading is kind of a victimless crime. The IRS might have perspectives on that. The mere fact that the cost of that transaction was minimal to this person because like flash loans are generally uncollateralized, like you don't have to put up a bunch of money to borrow it. Like what what are the if you think expansively about what that might mean for more interesting transactions, it was a little bit mind blowing. That, yeah. And it, it goes back to your point of everything old is new again. I think I was supposed to write a story about that and I'd probably drop yeah, the ball. Yeah, we talked now. about it and then yeah. you were busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I dropped the ball. 2022 is a, another year, a new opportunity for, for more balls to drop. So we're recording this a, a couple weeks early here, right in the middle of December. And mine was just the really just a couple nights ago, Stacey, when we were sitting there and you all of a sudden said the price of Bitcoin is up about 800 million percent or something. I forget the exact number, but. Some data era happened, I guess, somewhere between Coinbase and Coin Market Cap, where mm -hmm. prices uh, just went bananas. You know, I, I don't even know what the top tick of Bitcoin was in that that era, but it was it was something in the hundreds of millions, I think, maybe even in the billions. And even Shiba Inu, I think, at one point was worth twenty nine thousand uh, dollars per Shiba Inu, which is was worth way below a, a fraction of a penny. But it does, you know, it, it goes back to that notion of where how the industry needs to mature and and where it's going i mean 
to me, what was amazing is people just laughed it off. You know, people were doing screenshots of their accounts with billions I'm of dollars. I'm a trillionaire. I'm a yeah. trillionaire and, and $100 billion in my Coinbase. I mean, in a way, it makes me think, well, the users kind of have matured enough to know an error when they see it. So maybe maybe that's part of it is the user base. Now, it's not just sort of the plumbing of the market and everything, but the users themselves kind of know it when they see it. You know what I mean? I think I think the reason that that was okay was that everything went up. Right, um, that's, true. that's true. I mean, because you know, imagine let's say everything had massively gone down, yeah. and that had triggered like liquidations, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Or you know, or like blew through someone's stop orders. We might have been having a very different conversation yesterday. Right. <laughs> than the would one not we had. be as fun. It would not have been as a funny uh, joke. Well, and I think the instinctively. You know, that's kind of what you worry about. You could you could see theoretically, you know, something happening to cause a massive, you know, drop in Bitcoin. To see a, a massive million, 10 million percent rally would seem, you know, on its face mm-hmm. less plausible, I guess. I don't know. Uh, with that said, I don't know. I, I It's hard, going to be hard to top the crazy things of 2021 and 2022. Oh, I, famous I, last words, man. I know. I, hopefully I'm <laughs> jinxing it. And we, we've got plenty of more uh, crazy stories to write uh, next year. Uh, what do you think, Valdana? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No way that it's not going to be crazy again. Stacey, Valdana's most excited about Bitcoin and crypto being 24-7 because that means she gets to work on the weekends. Like She she doesn't have to like figure out something shaking else shaking her head. She's like, absolutely not. My eyes um, go wide every time somebody brings it up. <laughs> <laughs> there they go. They did just go eyes. I think the laser beams shot out of her eyes on that one too. Oh, I'm ducking. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I think that's all the time we have. Stacey, so great to have you on the show. And we're definitely going to bring you back a few times uh, in 2022 to to make sense of all this because it's here to stay. Like it or not, it's here to stay. Exactly. Thank you, Stacey. A pleasure. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildata Hyrick is at Vildata Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.